Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is a MCRIT shadow boxing episode. What is shadow boxing? That was a situation created by Gary Klein in which experts are interviewed about a case, and then it's presented to people uh, further back in their career, and at key decision points, uh, you stop the presentation and you have people form in their own minds what they would do and then you start up again the presentation process with the experts responding and see how far or differing your uh, stance on what you would do is from the alleged experts. And in this way, you garner their tacit knowledge or formulate uh, some things to ponder as to why they did something different than you. It turns out maybe you're right, but the thinking through it is really the potent uh, mixture here. Now, I have my regular crew, my former fellows, uh, Ryan Barnacle and Christina Liu, as well as our resident presenter, Sammy Chetit. And uh, we have a case. They're, mostly these cases are routine. They're not like extraordinary gotcha cases where you, oh my God, it's this rare differential I never would have thought about. They're just bread and butter emergency medicine. Now, if you like this format and you have a case where there's a lot of key decision points, but it's not crazy, it's you know, you know not a CPC case, they're just bread and butter emergency medicine, but they have a lot of decision points, then get in touch with me at mcrit.org slash contact and tell me and uh, you know we'll de-identify it, we'll make it uh, didactically relevant and you can present your case and you know get on the air and it's fun times for all. Um, but today we have a case of uh, Barnacle gave it a title chicken or the egg, which organ failed first. So there's your priming for going into this case. Now, the way it works is you're going to hear this sound. And then uh, it's going to be a brief pause, which is your chance to formulate what you would do or what you're thinking at the time. And then the experts will answer. So let's get right into it. All right. So, so we've named the case uh, before we get into it. Do you want to hear the title or should we save that for the post? Well, would the title give too much away or? No, okay. it's called Chicken or the Egg, Which Organ Failed First? Oh, okay. I like this. Uh -oh. right. So here's the case in order of which information was available real time. Just for everyone's reference, I'm in a community site that during this case, with really not a nursing staff that's commonly deals with super critical cases or does prolonged critical care management in the ED typically. EMS called a code three coming in five minutes with some limited information. We got a 39-year-old female with a history of myeloma whose CPAP machine broke. She was found down, cyanotic, and currently being bagged. All right, so we're going to pause, and for Scott and Christina and the audience, how does your airway management priorities change when a patient is being manually ventilated by EMS on arrival? And specifically, what do you look for to ensure quality BVM management, and how do you transition to e-staff from the EMS personnel? You start, Christina. Hearing that, so the patient is in the hospital. Yeah, this is getting my setup ready. So I make sure I have all make sure I have all the equipment. It looks like with this tracheal, he said myeloma. Is that a cancer, uh, some sort of cancer? Or either way, I would make sure I have my traditional intubation setup. Have my advanced airway. So at our shop, we do have the bronchoscopies as well. 
if we have to do it that way. I would definitely make sure, because I don't know which level the obstruction is, to have a cry kit set up as well. And just be prepared for everything. We, it sounds like we have no idea what her anatomy is. Clearly, she has. it sounds like she has to be intubated or some sort of rescue, either BiPAP, CPAP, or it just sounds like she's unresponsive, so intubation. So clearly, we have to have the basics there. But based on that limited history, I would also make sure I have my advanced airway adjuncts available. Sammy, is a code three a cardiac arrest or is it just a sick patient? Code three is sick patient. So okay. like lights so, and sirens. We, so maybe we, we don't know. Bad. The patient has not, as we, far as we know, the patient's not in arrest right now. Right. As far as we know, not in arrest. All right. So for a patient like this, I'd go with everything Christina said. I, If I wind up with a patient who is app I don't like crash intubations. I see no reason to do them. And the temporizing move, if the patient will tolerate it without any additional meds, is to just throw down a supraglottic airway, which for most people in the hospital is going to be a LMA of some sort. I always prefer the eye gel in inexperienced practitioners, and the size four eye gel fits virtually every patient you're ever going to encounter. So if you just have one of those on your table, set up and their EMS gets there and they're bagging and you don't know how effectual it is, have a very low threshold to just throw down the LMA, hook up end title, which is the major preparation point is end title should be there and tested by someone actually blowing on it and confirming that it is working. And if that temporizes, then you could just have someone at the head uh, sticking with that while you have all the time in the world to figure out what the hell's going on, get ready for airway and do a really nice controlled intubation. The, the failure mode I think most people get to is the patient rolls in, EMS is bagging them. The patient obviously needs to be intubated and they just crash right to an intubation. They don't checklist. They don't prepare things the same way. They don't position the patient the same way. Sometimes they'll even try it without meds because they don't want to wait. And it's a shit show when it could be this careful controlled situation. And even though on paper, just doing BVM to that point sounds good, I find that it oftentimes does not work out as well as it does in people's imagination. Their breasts are ineffectual. They're not tracking the BVM breasts with end-tidal CO2. And as a result, the patient is not necessarily oxygenating well. Okay, great. She rolls in. She's getting manually ventilated with the bag valve mask. It's reportedly easy to ventilate, and she's now oxygenating with a SpO2 of greater than 95%. So initial exam shows initial vitals of heart rate of 95, temperature 97.6. She's got a respiratory rate of five, like a native rate that we could tell, but is being bagged every five seconds. Initial blood pressure took quite a while to get due to the patient's arm size. And then of course the blood pressure cuff's not working, et cetera, but eventually got it. The blood glucose was okay. It was 150s. General what, what appearance. What blood pressure, Sammy, that you eventually got? You never mentioned. Oh that. yeah. We didn't get it yet, but okay. down the Fine. line, yep. it's 138. Uh, 138 she did have palpable pulses. She's obtunded, generally no evidence of trauma. Her pupils are a little constricted, but not pinpoint, and they are reactive. Cardiovascular, she's regular rate and rhythm, no obvious murmurs. Uh, again, not cyanotic or mottled. Her extremities are not cold. She's morbidly obese, but she has no pitting edema. She does have bilateral 
coarse lung sounds, but no strider. Abdomen is soft, non-distended. Neuro, she's withdrawing to painful stimuli in all extremities. So since she was easily bagged, we decided there was time to optimize before intubation. We established large bore IVs and then ultimately got the blood pressure, which I mentioned 138 over 64. So we'll pause again. So it looks like we're heading towards intubation. I think our MCRIT audience knows in general how to optimize before intubation. But for this patient, are there unique features that you can tell already that should be specifically considered? And I can give you a clue if you need one. So are you concerned with her toxidrome? her obesity, do you think this blood pressure is reliable? And I think we already touched upon this, but would you upgrade your airway device above the BVM? I just going over what's going through my mind as you're saying all these, I guess the first thing is as far as her toxidrome, you're saying that she's having, she has a low respiratory rate. She's uptunded and she has constricted pupils. Do we know from past, from her history or maybe she's unidentified, but do we know if she has a history of any sort of drug use? Is there anything, any reason to suspect that there may be an opiate on board or a reversible cause, something like Narcan? So that's the first thing. The other thing being that just based on what you're saying, as far as her body habitus, she's being bagged. I would be prepared for either a difficult intubation or one where she's just going, her stats are just going to plummet um, when you do intubate. Off the top of my head, you're wondering, is First, the cause of it is it some sort of it's some sort of narcotic opiate related issue. Is it? I guess if you're very obese, you can worry about there being some worry about what if there maybe she's very hypercapnic. If there's such thing, she wears CPAP at night. Is there some sort of something else going on, like respiratory wise, as reversible causes? And then in general, getting to what's in front of you, how difficult is intubation going to be? So I would look at her anatomy. It sounds like it's going to be difficult based on her her history of their trach and her body habits. Yeah, those comments are fantastic and very much in keeping with my mindset. The game we're playing is that when a point is mentioned the way it is, oh, and her pupils are constricted, you always have to wonder, is this priming us to to think down that road? And in real life, would we have noticed how constricted the pupils really were? Or is this just, it fits the story? That's always the problem with these versus the verisimilitude of real life. But yeah, I'm with Christina. I think you're leading us down a path. So I, if- I'll tell you real life was so. What's that (laughs) saying? I said, I'll tell you in real life, it was very subtle. It was okay. not like. All right. So it's not run. the pinpoints that we're really talking about. All right. So look, someone in the room inevitably is going to be like, should we give Norcan? And my answer is always, sure, let's do it. But I wouldn't stop my preparations for intubation. Now, if you're in a center where that could just be like a one minute trip to the med room and they come back and give it, I'm willing to wait a minute or two because I want the pre-oxygenation time anyway. But I'm, if this is like an entire rigmarole and, oh, they, this Pixis didn't have it, I'm going to another Pixis, my trigger to intubate this patient's pretty low. And I wouldn't mind extubating them if like the overdose wore off and now they're awake and they want the tube out, which is different, I think, than most of emergency medicine. That's one of the things the Resus Fellowship builds is emergency medicine is comfortable with intubating. A lot of emergency medicine is not comfortable with taking it out. But once you could take the plastic out that you put in, all of a sudden a lot of things become much easier in terms of decisions. You get that head injury versus E2H intoxication on a Friday night and they're not staying still and you've given them some Haldol and they're still flailing around. You want to get them CT to figure out if the patient has a huge bleed in their head. It's just like, it's easy. You tube them, you get the CT, 
And then if it's negative, you extubate them, right? So all of a sudden, a lot of things clear up in terms of decision points once you could take it out. I go with Christine on this one. She's morbidly obese. She's on CPAP. These are two things that tell us that this patient's going to need a different pre-oxygenation technique than just oxygen alone. And regardless of the patient's SATs, I'm going to be pre-oxygenating this patient with PEEP, with some form of increased mean airway pressure. Now, that doesn't mean having to get an entire machine there. It's a waste to get the non-invasive machine there just to have to stick them on a vent. So you could do it one of two ways. You could get a ventilator in the room and use that for both pre-oxygenation and for your post-intubation ventilatory management. But a lot of people are not savvy to make that happen quickly. They can mess it up. I think the safest thing is to put a nasal cannula on this patient's face, 15 liters per minute, for instance, and then put a BVM over their face with a tight sealing mask and a peep valve. And that's gonna get you everything you need for CPAP pre-oxygenation. And in obese patients, we know that even if their SATs look okay, you have a markedly increased time to desaturation during your intubation attempt. This is what Christina was alluding to when she said this patient could drop their SATs like a stone if you pre-oxygenate them with CPAP because they have de-recruited. They just haven't de-recruited enough to actually desaturate on supplemental O2, but they've lost alveoli if they're obese just by the nature of not taking their normal negative inspiratory breaths. They've lost alveoli. And that's that functional residual capacity, that's your buffer of safety during the intubation. For me, I would always be pre-oxygenating any morbidly obese patient with CPAP. And how would you position the patient during that pre-ox period? Yeah, it's your balance of still being able to view versus getting that obese panis off of the chest wall. And usually that balance sits around 30 to 45 degrees if you have video laryngoscopy, because then line of sight becomes less relevant. If you're still stuck with traditional laryngoscopes, then you can't really go beyond 30 too easily unless you're willing to do EMS type stuff where like you sidle your face up along the patient, or you have your hand on one side and your face on the other. It's awkward. And generally in the COVID era, I don't like to be that close, which is yet another reason people should have video laryngoscopy. And maybe this is a question, maybe this is a question more for just me, but if you feel like you have to do a strategy of pre-oxygenation with PEEP, then does that rule out using an LMA? You can put a PEEP on an LMA. It's just okay. a question of overall ceiling pressure. Can you get 20 of PEEP on an LMA? Not so easily, but you absolutely could get PEEP on an LMA. What seals easier? A cuff of an LMA to glottic structures or a BVM mask to a face? Well, there's a lot less variance down there uh, with the gelled a cuff. So you could do it with either. You just lose ceiling pressure on both. And now the key with any LMA, and people forget this, and maybe this is the critical point to make in this area, they think it's a neutral device in terms of holding it in the airway. And sometimes they'll secure it at neutral. And that's okay. You'll get away with it sometimes when you're just doing breasts. But if you're doing PEEP, it has to be sealed with inward force. And it has to be held with inward force. For all of them that I'm familiar with, a little bit of inward force, meaning that if you're holding the LMA, you haven't secured it yet, you're pushing inwards as you're ventilating. And if you're securing it, you push inwards and then secure in tension towards the patient's glottic structures. If you secure neutral, it will not maintain a seal. Awesome. Gotcha. All right. We're doing so, our so best. Did the patient get the Narcan? We'll see. So we got okay. an EKG real quick, which was normal sinus rhythm, narrow complex, no ST segment changes, suggesting ischemia. Ultrasound is being used elsewhere. So we sent someone to go get that. We optimized positioning for intubation with some multiple backups, given this tracheomyeloma history. So we'd assumed so we- Tell the audience, because I'm sure there are people there, including potentially Christine and I, what exactly is tracheomyeloma? Is that just a tumor of the trachea? So I think the 
that could be a pretend thing. So I, we assume they probably meant tracheomalacia. Oh, okay. And wow. prepared for potential difficult airway just in case there was some sort of head or neck cancer. So yeah, we were like, man, tracheomyeloma, that sounds odd for a 30, a 30-something-year-old lady. All right, so let's pause again, because this obviously, it, it does raise the question of how you're going to prepare. I had to do a little bit of reading, but in layman's term, tracheomalacia is essentially just like a collapsing trachea. Yeah, it's like a uh, floppy trachea. Be, yeah. yeah, congenital or acquired, but are there important considerations for intubating someone with known or suspected tracheomalacia? I don't know of any. So assuming like it's high suspicion or known, you just proceed as normal. I think so. Look, if there is an issue with it, it's during spontaneous breathing. My guess is like positive pressure breathing would actually be the opposite situation of it's like the alveoli in the COPD or like the structures around it getting sucked in and collapsing and you want to stent that stuff. I don't think with positive pressure, there's going to be an issue in any way. Yeah, I imagine yeah. it splints it open. Yep. Yeah, so I in my reading, that was like the only thing when it came to emergent airway management is if you have to pre-oxygenate, you probably need positive pressure with PEEP. And that's why she was on CPAP chronically. All right. I like that. So once optimized, so we prepared for intubation, we did happen to have the luxury of EMS and just handed us a, here's a quick meds list. And yeah, so we saw that she took morphine for chronic pain. So just prior to intubation, intubation we trialed a dose of Narcan. We gave 0.4 milligrams. So I think the question I would have for the audience and you guys is, we're hoping this works. Is there ever a reason not to give Narcan in this situation? And what dose are you leading with? I... I would give the Narcan, especially in a patient who I think is going to be a complicated intubation, like just to save that, to try to prevent that. My move is that I don't go too aggressive with it. I'll give it the 0.4. And then I might, if nothing happens, I might give another 0.4 and just call it a day and intubate and let, you know, let time and let her metabolize whatever that really is an opiate overdose, especially if it sounds like if she's that far gone. If that amount is not working, then I wouldn't go, I wouldn't, I would try it and then I would move on. Yeah, I agree. Give much, much lower doses of naloxone when it's a different scenario, right? When it's a known opioid overdose or you strongly suspect it and the patient has nothing else going on, I'll give 0 0.04, 0 0.04 and just keep going with that one or two cc's of that 0.04 grams per ml and see what happens. That's not this case. I agree with Christina. I'd give a bigger dose because I'm just giving them one shot and then they're getting intubated. Yeah, 0.4 is good. I might even give more. Sometimes they'll bring me the two milligram naloxone syringe and I'll just push it in this patient because I don't care. Like the risk benefit is entirely different than a case that is differentiated, right? Because the only risk is withdrawal. And the secondary risk that has no applicability in this case is um, non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. That happens because their patient's not being ventilated before their Narcan, which is not an issue in that in this case. So that's when you take a fresh overdose and you reverse them and they take this enormous breath against the closed glottis and they get horrible negative pressure pulmonary edema. I don't think we're allowed to call it that anymore, but that's what it is. And that's not this case. This patient's being bagged down. Their SATs are good. The real risk is just that they have to have some misery of withdrawal for a little while, and we can ameliorate that. But that's saving them the risk of getting an intubation, which is a much bigger risk. So I got no problem going big on this patient. Okay. 
Great. 0.4 milligrams is pushed. Within one minute, the patient woke up, was coughing, breathing on her own. After a few minutes of disorientation, she was awake and talking. Though still kind of space, it couldn't give us much history. She said in general, she was feeling fine, denied any chest pain, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting. Her mother also arrived at this time and gave some additional, which is where the complexity of this case comes in. I was hoping so, so Sammy, because this would have been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Had been having, so the mom said the patient had been having this recurrent cough, got a bronchoscopy a couple of months ago and was diagnosed with trachea bronchomalacia. They had an echocardiogram at that time revealed also had pulmonary hypertension on echo. So she was to see a pulmonologist next month for further workup, just hasn't done so yet. She was also recently diagnosed with OSA and was prescribed the CPAP at night, which she had been using intermittently due to tolerance issues. And she was diagnosed with pneumonia last week and has been taking augmented. At this time, she started having critical DSATs below 90%. All right. So we're going to pause again. <clears throat> so for the audience, ask yourselves, you seemingly had this successful reversal of an opiate toxidrome, but now she's hypoxic. So what are the differentials we need to consider and how are we going to investigate and manage this new hypoxemia? You know, I, I missed the hypoxemia. So what is her SAD and what is she currently on after the reversal, Sammy? So she was currently on nasal cannula. Now SAT is, keeps having drops below 90%. So she is satting okay for most of the time and then just drops? Yeah. Okay. And when you say nasal cannula, like what kind of LPN? It was just the standard, <laughs> like so just running less than six. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. She was on pretty minimal use at first right after the Narcan. Yeah. Is it dropping secondary to a decreased respiratory rate or is it just she's breathing? No, so she doesn't appear to have like toxidromal findings at this point. She wasn't hypopnic or anything. She just started desetting. I guess Christina's question alludes to is this Pickwickian. Is she having these intermittent spells of apnea? Oh, no, it doesn't seem so. Just she seems to be breathing at a normal rate with no apneic spells. No. All right. Christina, you clearly have the answer at this point. What, what's going on? I mean, and what anything goes, if the, I guess if we, if I didn't know all her past medical history with this, with her, how she presented, I would think maybe it's an aspiration that causing her to be hypothetical that she was out. But then you have other things going on. Is it her pneumonia? Is it, I guess, the pulmonary hypertension and the intermittent OSA is probably connected in that sense? Is it, does the OSA lead to her pulmonary hypertension? That's, I guess there's multiple factors. I would think if, if she is desatting with her history, I would probably just put her on a non-invasive while, just while we're trying to figure things out, just to, we know she has the tracheomalacia, formerly known as tracheomyel, was it myeloma? But either way, all things are good with the BiPAP if she's awake with the non-invasive. It could be CPAP. Yeah, I completely agree. When I don't know what's going on, the way to look clever is to do something that's smart. And the smart thing on this patient, if they're desatting, is to get them on some increased mean airway pressure. My personal vent bent would be to go with a high flow nasal cannula uh, on this patient. I think it'll uh, take us where we need to right 
now, uh, though I have no problem whatsoever with just a BiPAP or CPAP situation, just as you said, Christina. But I'd want some more information to hedge until I could figure out what the F is going on. So I'd want an x-ray and a blood gas on this patient. And I don't care which... That was the hedge move for the... Those seem like reasonable things. Those are that, do, we have, do we have a way of like sharing the x-ray? Yeah, no, yeah okay. and obviously just so the ultrasound people don't friggin' lynch us. While the x-ray is being obtained, we certainly could do a blue protocol yeah. exam and actually get some additional information before the x-rays. Low lung so, volumes, but no consolidation, <laughs> a little bit of atelectasis. So not helpful. All right. But we also, so yeah, we did start BiPAP and her mental status started improving. Overall, we thought we had cracked the case. This was a morphine overdose coupled with some CO2 narcosis problem solved. Did you um, have evidence of the CO2 before this point, Sammy, or this is just a conjecture? Not yet. <laughs> not yet. So there was no point of care labs, unfortunately, but labs did start to roll in. So you got that chest x-ray, which we just told you about. Initial VBG showed pH is 7.15, pCO2 of 69, bicarb of 23, and then a lactate was 1.4. CBC was showed a white count of 20, otherwise no anemia, normal platelets. CMP showed a creatinine of 4.21, a potassium of 6.3 with a GFR of 10. She had previously normal kidney function. And then high sensitive sensitivity trope was 800. And the scale on that? Oh, oh, yeah. So that's the basically point what point eight on. No, I'm just saying what's the, the normal on. Oh, one. sorry, less than fifty. Okay, so that's high, uh, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah it's high, okay. but it's not like crazy high. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's not like a STEMI type high. All right. So, so here we have to pause. Yeah. Yeah, we can pause. So we've got like a respiratory acidosis, a leukocytosis, acute kidney injury with hyperkalemia, and an NSTEMI. So we're going to start addressing all these things. <clears throat> what would be your kind of order of operations? And then specifically when addressing the hyperkalemia, are, how are you adjusting for this acute kidney injury? So I think as far as the respiratory acidosis that we have going, you're already addressing it by having her on the non-invasive. And the hyperkalemia, does she have EKG changes that go with it? No, her EKG was pretty unremarkable. Yeah, so no. I would probably give, and I didn't know you said what her original glucose was, but I would give the insulin dextrose. The only thing with the creatinine being high is that I would, expect that the insulin that we give her might stick around a little longer. So I would either, I would put her, I would do give two amps of dextrose out of uh, instead of the one and also have more frequent glucose checks to make sure that she doesn't I And I know controversial, but I would probably, yeah, I know she has no EKG changes and traditionally we don't give calcium. There's no EKG changes, but I also don't think anyone checks. So I would just give the calcium. Sammy, you didn't give us a piece of information that for me is crucial to start evaluating this, which is what's the patient's BUN? I don't have that handy. Well, was um, it pre-renal or is this a... It looked to be pre-renal, yes. Yeah, I don't have the exact... That, that fits more with the situation here. So then fluids become a desirable solution only hindered by the patient's borderline or real pulmonary hypertension, which makes me a little bit 
Uh, and Ryan actually, I did, I did find the facial last. gesture that means something. So I'm not because of Ryan's facial gesture. I'm not going to go crazy with the fluids, but sometimes you'll be amazed at how they respond to just a little bit. So maybe we give 500, a thousand cc's of something, whether it be LR or some other balanced solution. And don't we're not even going to discuss why it's okay, even though those contain potassium, to still give it in this patient. Um, and now Lou's idea of actual BiPAP looks better than my hypo nasal cannula to take care of the PaCO2. So that's there. I repeat an EKG, obviously, but you would have told us if something crazy was going along with that troponin. So we'll stick with the NSTEMI type situation. And I got to say, this patient's starting to give me the vibe of I don't want to be caught out. And since sepsis is the great masquerader, I'd probably culture and just cover this patient just to have that in my back pocket because my threshold to give one dose of broad spectrum antibiotics is virtually nil on a sick patient and my threshold to continue them with no source of infection is also nil. And that balance gets you a very nice place where you're giving a lot of patients one or two doses and very few patients continue doses and you always look like a million bucks when you do that. And are you adjusting your insulin and dextrose for this new AKI? Always give the two amps of D50 because I don't really care about a brief period of hyperglycemia. I mean, that, that was our unit protocol was 10 units and two amps. And I think that's the smart way to go. And if you want to give one amp, then I think you're obliged to reduce to five units of insulin. And either of those two are acceptable. But I think 10 and one for any patient is just not a clever way to go. Well summarized. All right, let's keep going. It gets more complicated. Right. So, yeah, we gave albuterol, insulin, D50, just one amp. And then we did give calcium gluconate as well. So about an hour into the case, blood pressure started downtrending now with the systolics in the 80s, but MAP was hovering around uh, 60 to 65. Her mental status also had not declined. She was still briskly answering questions appropriately, but did seem pretty tired overall. With that kidney function, we had a Foley catheter placed for close ins and outs. And then we trialed one liter of fluid of LR, which did not improve her blood pressure. We also did a point of care ultrasound at this point, which to my read, admittedly not the greatest sonographer, but showed a plump IVC, a few B lines, a mildly depressed EF mildly dilated appearing ventricles, no pericardial effusion. She continued to be hypotensive. Now with Matt- Let me pause you. Had the right look in relation to the left. It, it was not particularly significantly dilated. Okay. It's just kind of like both seemed a little plump, okay. but nothing dressed. Okay. So continued to be high, hypotensive now with MAP in the high 50s. Also now starting to get a little less responsive. All right, so we're gonna pause again and ask ourselves, why is this patient decompensating? And how are we gonna manage this blood pressure? So uh, I guess this is always the, this is always the problem with, I guess, pulmonary hypertension is that you never know, you never know how much fluid to give, it's easy to overload them. I think in this case, again, I guess the, for a temporizing measure, I think there's never a bad idea to put on a little bit of peripheral pressors now. We could squeeze down a little bit, increase the stress volume, and then gently give hydration and see how you go. It sounds, based on what you're telling me, that the patient is probably going to be still fluid tolerant. So I might push it a little bit further. I, but I think before I do that, I would probably start the patient on pressors. Nor, nor, norepinephrine is probably a safe choice. It gives you a little bit of 
the uh, it gives you a little bit of inotropy on top of everything else just to help with that squeeze. And then I would start gently hydrating. I would probably give it in small aliquots at a time until we get a little better picture. Yeah, I like all that. I'd say my in the back of my mind, what's percolating is what, at what point do I intubate this patient? And in these pulmonary hypertension patients, once I start them on press, I love to just put in a right IJ line and get a CVP. CVP is garbage for most of the things we used to use it for, but it's a very nice marker of what's going on in the right atrium. And unless there's tricuspid pathology, that's a pretty good marker of what's going on in the RV. And I think it gives you a lot of information. It allows you to trend. And if you're doing the gentle fluid additions that Christine is alluding to, and it's not affecting the CVP very much, then you know you're not actually affecting their pulmonary hypertension to a usually negative extent. So that would be a nice guidance for me. So that's probably where I'd go on this patient at this point is... Start peripheral pressors, throw in a central line, switch them over to that central line for their pressors, start monitoring CVP and start figuring it out. And just in the back of my mind now is this patient's probably going down an intubation pathway. Okay. All right. You had a nice differential. I'm just going to summarize it quickly so we can move on. So yeah. you considered an MI causing cardiogenic shock. They have this bump in the troponin, but no chest pain, risk factors, or EKG changes. You thought about septic shock, especially since she's got the leukocytosis, recent pneumonia, but also not febrile or tachycardic. You thought about PE, but that seemed like a weird timeline given sort of her up and down hemodynamics. And then you focused on her underlying pulmonary hypertension and the need for possible ongoing treatment of the opioid toxicity. So walk us through what you guys did next. All right. But Tenning and I had a discussion about how best to proceed with this history of pulmonary hypertension, not related to bad heart. We thought just because of her age, given the POCUS, it looked like global depressed cardiac dysfunction in generally volume up. We opted to not give additional fluids and we're talking about what presser to start. So ultimately to start a norepi, see what happens and with a plan to do vasopressin as a second line with the thought being to try to increase coronary perfusion first, and then also think about, do we need pulmonary dilators or something with this pulmonary hypertension? And so vaso was something we thought apparently can cause some vaso, pulmonary vasodilation as well as peripheral constriction. So that's why we were thinking about that. Repeat VBG, now that she's back on the BiPAP, is 7.23 for the pH. PCO2 is 47, bicarb of 19. So now has this metabolic component to it. The blood pressure was consistently low despite going up to 30 mics per minute of norepi, though the hospital policy, apparently she could not exceed the 30 mics regardless of her weight, which was 100, 124, 125 kilograms. We also did redose her with Narcan with no change. We used another 0.4 milligrams. And now she had declining mental status on BiPAP. So ICU is finally able to come evaluate her and recommended intubation based on the repeat blood gases, more IV fluids, and agreed with adding vasopressin with the thinking that her pH being this low was making the norepi ineffective. And that, that was our reasoning. And so we have a pause here. So let's pause and hear what Scott's shaking his head out. So specifically, audience, what's your differential for a failing vasopressor, especially maxed out vasopressor? Do you agree with the recommendation to give this patient more fluids? And then specifically, because this is a little bit above uh, my pay grade, how does pH affect your choice of pressors? 
And what are you doing about addressing the acidosis? So much here. First of all, this patient's not at an acidosis that anyone should care about. 7.23, even in the most conservative viewpoint, is not a worrisome pH for vasopressor effects. I, I've been very troubled by this idea that low pH, and they'll talk about something like 7.2, is killing your vasopressors. If there is an effect, and I can't tell you for sure there isn't, it's at very low pHs. Somewhere less than seven is where you start seeing these deleterious effects on the effect of vasopressors. I, and even then, it's very conflicted in the literature whether it exists or not. There should be never a hospital cap on vasopressor. Doses of one microgram per kilogram are well within the range of normal. And sometimes in an abnormal case, you have to go up to 150, 200 micrograms of norepi, especially things like calcium channel blocker overdoses. So a hospital limit of 30 should just be, you have to go to your PNT and get rid of that. And what it should be is guideline max dose is 30. Physicians can divert from that when needed. That's how these have to be phrased, and you have to go to your committees and make that happen. It can't be a, you cannot go beyond 30. Now, most of the time when you explore that, you find that's not true, that it is a guideline, that the pharmacy understands sometimes you'll exceed it, and that the nurses then have to program the pumps in ways they don't like, and so the nurses tell you, no, I can't go below, above 30, because they have to like, break guardrails, and they have to actually figure out a way to do it. But if it really is a limit, that's a huge problem. Now, I would say... At those doses, with uh, echo that's showing globally depressed heart function, before I'd add in vaso, I'd strongly consider an inotrope, especially in a pulmonary hypertension patients. And look, vaso is very nice in these pulmonary hypertension patients, so if you wanted to put that on early, that's fine. But by the time I'm on 30 of norepi, I would always have had an inotrope there. Uh, before that happens, whether that be a milrinone, I like epi, dobutamine would be actually fine as well. Ostensibly, milrinone is most salutary in a pulmonary hypertension. I don't like its titratability in, in these early patients in the ED, so I like epi. If I know pulmonary hypertension is the reason, like a massive PE, then it's vaso and epi is my choice, and then I'll add in norepi if I have to. But on a patient like this where it's questionable what is the actual cause, is pulmonary hypertension the chicken or the egg, as you started with, of this whole thing? I have no problem with norepi, but I probably want some backing of inotropy there as well. What do you think, Christina? I agree. I would add a little bit of inotropy to it. Just, I guess, a few cleanup questions. I agree with everything that Scott said, but cleanup questions. Is she on steroids for whatever reason? Is there anything that would No, be not that we saw. She was not on steroids. And then the altered mental status, like did anyone, did you guys end up scanning her head? Just in the off chance. Yeah, we did not get a scan in the ED. I don't think they ever end up getting any scan. Yeah. Yeah. But, but um, we are considering that. Yeah. <laughs> what about giving more fluids, guys? Are we doing it? If you're intubating, I would do it. Like I said, I would test it out. I would, I like to give the small aliquots. I suppose you could also do the leg lift and see if that changes anything. And I guess there's, you could do the ultrasound and look at your BTIs or your carotid flows and that fun stuff. But I might try it. I might try a little bit. Yeah. I, and like I said, IBC I probably would give it some more too. Is, With the monitoring of CVP makes me feel a lot better yeah. about it. Okay. Right. Take us home, Sammy. <laughs> okay. Azo was started. ICU again was able to take her. Intubation was deferred to the ICU team. In the ICU, uh, 
patient's blood pressure did start improving. And they also started a Narcan drip. Here I have another pause. So you guys got out of the intubation, but let's say we had to do, <laughs> if you are suspecting pulmonary hypertension might be contributing to her hemodynamics and respiratory failure, how do we modify our intubation technique for someone with suspected or known pulmonary hypertension or RV failure? And how do we adjust our vent settings? Oh, wow. I try to avoid it at all costs. I think in a patient with pulmonary hypertension, I think your mortality is just spectacularly high. Isn't it 70, 80? I'm pulling numbers out of nowhere. So it's very high. The risk of death, the risk of post-intubation hypotension and causing all sorts of issues. In this case, you can, I suppose you really thought it was pulmonary hypertension that's causing this failure. You could try intubating and then trying inhaled nitric oxide or something to increase the downstream obstruction. And I'm, this is, I would probably do this after I also maximize the inotropy and of the patient, but no, defer to Scott. I'm sure you have a... Yeah, look, the, we could bandy around the world pulmonary hypertension, and it means a lot of different things. The initial echo is going to give you a gestalt. It doesn't sound like from your description that there's an enormous failure level of pulmonary hypertension in this patient. I'd probably grab a barnacle and tell him to do all those things that he's going to do to tell me how bad this is. And he'll give me some surrogate of the pulmonary artery pressure and et cetera. And he could really quantify this for me. Or I get, if I can't find a barnacle, I just get a cardiologist down there and tell him, look, tell me how bad this pulmonary hypertension really is. And that would be a useful piece of information. But it sounds like this patient has been labeled with that diagnosis, but this does not sound like florid right heart failure as the cause of what's going on here. She's morbidly obese. She's got other issues going on. And you could very safely intubate any patient awake, even with pulmonary hypertension. You're not changing their hemodynamics dramatically with that. And then if you felt the need to intubate, and it's, this patient's right on the border. I can't make the decision yet. They haven't pushed me one way or the other. But if you do it and you do it awake and you start them on low vent settings, you could even just start them on a little bit of pressure support and PEEP initially if you didn't actually paralyze them because they'll be breathing on their own. Um, then you could titrate it slowly up and you won't have this dramatic drop you get from when you do an RSI with paralysis and then put them on, you slam them on to full vent settings. That's how patients die. That's what Christine is talking about. So if you felt the need to intubate them, you can do it relatively safely. And it would be either a topicalized awake or a ketamine awake. And in both of those circumstances, I think you'd be able to preserve their hemodynamics. Yeah, and I wanted to get to that point. I just think RSI is, is the dangerous thing here. It's not fluorid RV failure. Going slow and cautiously is reasonable regardless. I assume they did an RSI, Sammy, but your case didn't say. Yeah, unfortunately, there was not so great documentation around the intubation, just the size of tube and stuff, but didn't detail any particular medication considerations or outside of the norm. So if it was in the ICU, I could almost guarantee it was an RSI. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, walk us through the rest of the hospital course and then we'll wrap it up. Okay. Yeah. She did pretty well in the ICU, ultimately weaned off norepi within six hours, weaned off vasopressin within eight hours. She stayed on the vent overnight. Her other labs also resulted, most notably the CK, which was 3,000. Um, she ended up getting a total of four liters of IV fluids that first day and night. Her morning labs were all improved. White blood cell count was 12. Kidney function now creatinine is 1.86, GFR is up to 35, potassium 3.1, BUN 24, and then the trope was downtrending as well. 
she got a formal echo, which was poor quality due to windows, but showed a EF of 65% and then pulmonary hypertension with an RBSP of 45 and then some mild tricuspid regurg. Ultimately treated for sepsis, like you talked about with some broad spectrum antibiotics. She stayed in the hospital for a total of four days. There was some complications with, she had some massive diarrhea after starting antibiotics, et cetera, but she never had positive blood cultures or anything, ultimately extubated really within 24 hours of getting intubated. And then hospital course, they just treated for pneumonia in supportive care, essentially. She was seen by pulmonology in the hospital, but not for pulmonary hypertension for the trachea malacia. Ultimately, they didn't have any immediate recs. They just were going to see her and follow up. But ultimately, they think that the uh, like a community acquired pneumonia instigated all this that made her less compliant with the CPAP because she was coughing up stuff. So she stopped wearing the CPAP and then for some reason or another got dehydrated and then her morphine, maybe it was like a renal overdose quote. Yeah. I mean, I think those are all the highlights of her uh, hospital course. If there's anything else. Did she actually develop a radiographic pneumonia at some point that blossomed later on? I, yeah, it was a soft call. The I think the other chest x-ray didn't show like a huge consolidation, but she had product, She had a productive cough and All right. got better with antibiotics for what it's worth. Aspiration. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So ultimately unsatisfied. So much uh, of emergency medicine. <laughs> yeah. So with the that one more bit what from the pulmonologist notes, she had a prior bronchoscopy, which showed 90% collapse of the distal trachea and mainstem bronchi, even to the right lower lobe. So that was her tracheomalacia history. All right. All right. Ryan, you got any summary for this? Yeah, so we have a patient with a mixed respiratory failure, possibly multifactorial with her tracheomalacia, her obesity, hypoventilation syndrome, her OSA, complicated by recent pneumonia and possible morphine toxicity. We addressed all those things. We had a multifactorial shock, probably components of sepsis, hypovolemia, and maybe a little cardio. And then we had a multifactorial AKI. There is likely prerenal azotemia due to dehydration some possible intrinsic ATN versus rhabdo, but all of that kind of continuously improved over the course of the week. So in summary, what was it? The chicken or the egg? Which organ, her brain, her lungs, her kidneys failed first? We're not sure, but it all was an interesting management. Hey, May stuff. All right, this is what it's about. It's bread and butter. And a lot of times you just got to treat what's in front of you and hope that eventually it appears to you what happened. This one did not even appear in the ED. It didn't even appear necessarily in the ICU based on the nebulousness of all of those diagnoses, but that's the way it plays out. And oftentimes we just have a heuristic approach to symptomatic care that keeps patients alive long enough for the nerds to figure out what's going on. And so I think this is a perfect bread and butter emergency medicine case. <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. Thank you, Sammy, for the write-up. Indeed. All right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sammy, you got anything to finish with? I think you summarized it perfectly. This really is one of those cases where at every step of the way, the differential is just so wide and all you can do is address what's in front of you and, you know, what's immediately happening. Patient's hypoxic, place them on some high flow nasal cannula or, C or 
CPAP, BiPAP, their mental status is getting worse. Intubate them. At some point, the differentials are high, but you just got to address what's in front of you. Yep. Damn straight. All right. Thank you all. This has been great. Awesome. Thank you very much. Great to meet you guys. <laughs>